And how are you feeling the day Guitar Hero dropped? There were so many stories leading up to it. Best Buy was going to fine us money because we couldn't ship it to them in time. And, and you know, we thought, oh my gosh, we don't have enough units. How are we going to do this? We can't get fined. We don't have money. We had to borrow money just to survive. You're listening to Rock the Boat, a show about Asian Americans who challenge the status quo. Our past guests have included Andrew Yang, Michelle Fawn, Patrick Lee, and more. Our mission is to champion diversity in radio and elevate the voices of Asian Americans through storytelling. I'm your host, Lucia Liu. Hi, listeners. How many of you have played the music game Guitar Hero? I remember first playing the game at a friend's dorm room in college. I wasn't any good, but I really enjoyed the music. Up until I met the founder in San Francisco last year, I thought Guitar Hero was a Japanese game, similar to Dance Dance Revolution. However, I was pleasantly surprised to find out that the creators behind Guitar Hero were two Taiwanese brothers from the Bay Area. I met one of them, Kai Huang, at a conference out in SF, and asked if he was willing to share his founder story on Rock the Boat. Kai and his brother Charles' story is a quintessential startup story. It's a startup story filled with near bankruptcies, bootstrapping, lots of perseverance, and lots of luck. Here's Kai. Hi, I'm Kai Huang. I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I've spent most of my time in the game industry. Started a company called Red Octane with my brother, and we were most well-known for creating the game Guitar Hero. Amazing. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast, Kai. I have some fun questions for you. What's your highest score on Guitar Hero? Wow, my highest score on Guitar Hero. It's hard to remember exactly what my highest score was, but I will say that I was able to play Dragon Force on expert level. So that's the hardest song that we've probably ever done at the highest level possible. Wow. Okay. Who's better, you or your brother? Oh, gosh, I get this question uh, all the time. I wish I could say that I was better, but he probably wasted more time on it on the game. So he's better than I am. <laughs> That's <laughs> great answer. So in, in the end, you still won. <laughs> Amazing. Well, as with any creator, we always like to start with an origin story. So what was little Kai like? Oh, gosh. So I was born in Taiwan. My family moved to the U.S. when I was four. So I spent most of my life growing up in the U.S. We lived in New York for six years in uh, a small town 20 minutes north of Manhattan called North Terrytown. Um, it was most uh, well known for the legend of Sleepy Hollow. So we lived in New York for six years. And then my family moved out to uh, the San Francisco Bay Area when I was about 10. It was in fifth grade. And we moved to a small town back then called Mountain View. Now it's most well known for being the hometown for Google. And this is kind of where I grew up. Kai's parents were business owners. Growing up, he and his brother would help them out in their businesses which is why when Kai went to UC Berkeley for college, he decided to study business and economics. 
But while he was at Berkeley, he got drawn into a computer science class that was meant for engineering majors. So after I took that computer science class, I really liked it. And I thought, okay, well, you know, let me do an undergrad in computer science. And then, you know, someday I'll get my MBA. The professor also recommended that I take all the business classes as an undergrad that I wanted to make sure that I liked it. Right. I don't want to go back to my MBA. Go, God, I hate this. You know, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. Studying finance and marketing. So I ended up with a a computer science degree and a a business minor, computer science major and a business minor. And that's the one thing that I think, you know, I was quite lucky in. And I tell all the folks that I know who are interested in technology and startup that, you know, this is the path that I did. And if, if you are interested in going into, again, entrepreneurship and technology related to technology, you know, you should really consider this path because I I felt like I really benefited from it. Right. And judging by your LinkedIn, did you ever go, go get an MBA? I did not. So (laughs) I never went back and did my MBA as my sort of one regret. (laughs) Kai ended up as a management consultant at Accenture. There, he covered supply chain for telecom companies. He actually quite enjoyed it. However, something his father said to him while he was young stuck with him. One of the things that I really credit my parents with and really appreciated when I was growing up was they never really pressured me into a particular area. But my dad always said, hey, you know, it's fine. Go work for big companies. But, you know, someday you should really think about owning your own business. So I always thought I'd go back to get my MBA and then maybe work for a few more years at a big company and then eventually somewhere along the line start my own company. But I graduated. I enjoyed what I did at Accenture. So I ended up staying four years, a little bit longer than my peers who went back to get their MBA. And by then, it was the late 90s. Internet 1.0 was rip-roaring. And I thought, you know, I could go back and get my MBA now, or I could give this startup business thing a try. And hey, if it didn't work out, hopefully I had a chance to go back and get my MBA. So I decided at that time, after four years of Accenture, hey, let's let's jump right into the startup world and the MBA can wait. So how did you land on creating firewall and caching software for server appliances? Well, the first company that I co-founded was a company called Aduck Software. Like probably most startup founders, we spent six months, you know, after work weekends, just kind of ideating, ideating, what would be interesting, what would be interesting. And and that was the idea that we landed on. Nowadays, technology has grown so far that you get all of that in a tiny little router that you buy, you know, Wi-Fi router that you buy for your home. But back then that, you know, these Wi-Fi routers didn't exist. Mm. And so we were really developing the software for that. Got it. And then at what point did you transition into creating hardware for for games. Yeah, so Aduck Software, we bootstrapped the company. We had four co-founders. We developed the product. We tried to sell it. It was about a year into it. And I think we just realized that we knew how to develop the product, but we just didn't have the experience to sell it. And it was a B2B play. We were selling to hardware manufacturers. We were not selling direct to consumers. So we realized we had no idea what we were doing um, on that side. 
So we decided to sell it off. And my brother and I jumped out. He was one of my co-founders there as well. And we're trying to figure out what we wanted to do next. And, you know, we spent about three, three, four months after ADUX Software sort of figuring out, well, what are some interesting opportunities? And ultimately, we landed on video game rentals. Video game rentals was a billion dollar a year business, which is kind of a, a, a threshold for venture capitalist VCs to be interested in a market it has to be at least a billion dollars. You had businesses like Blockbuster and Hollywood Video when they still <laughs> existed. They were the only ones renting video games. And we thought, well, they're the only ones doing it and they don't really focus on it. They focus on movies. So they have like a couple shelves in the back where they stuff video games to keep the kids busy while the parents are there renting movies. And we thought, well, if you know, a company really focused on doing that, maybe this market could grow. Hmm. At the same time, Netflix was also just starting and they pioneered the DVD rental by mail. So we thought, well, what if we combined focusing on video games and rental by mail. And maybe, you know, that's a whole new opportunity. So that's actually how we started Red Octane. So you noticed this gap in the market for video game rentals. How did you guys end up selling DDR mats? Yeah, it, you know, quite, quite a few twists and turns. And, you know, where we started Red Octane was totally different from where we ended. We Started with the video game rentals. We raised a million dollars from family and friends right in March of 2000 at the height of the internet 1.0 bubble. Literally a month later, the dot-com bubble burst. Mm -hmm. Companies like Pets.com exploded. And we had a little bit of money in the bank, but we had to figure out how we were going to generate revenue. One of the games at that time that we were renting was Dance Dance Revolution. And customers would ask us, hey, you rent the game, but, you know, do you rent the dance pads or do you sell the dance pads? Because we need that to play the game. And for months, we told them, no, we don't rent dance pads or sell. All we do is rent games online. We don't do anything with hardware and accessories. Mm -hmm. After months of telling people that and the Internet bubble burst, we were like, oh, gosh, we got to generate some revenue. So we decided, well, why don't we try selling some of these dance pads? People are asking for it. <laughs> so we sourced some local third-party dance pads and resold them on our website. You know, we were still video game rentals online, but here's this tiny little link hidden on the side where you could click on it and buy dance pads. And so we did some grassroots marketing for the dance pads and that worked. And we did some more grassroots marketing. And all of a sudden, we had this tiny little cottage business selling dance pads. When you said you like made some grassroots attempts at marketing for these dance pads, what did those grassroots attempts look like? <laughs> yeah, it's, nowadays, it would be social media marketing and infiltration. But back then, there was no social media as we know it today. It was forums. So we went into forums and you know, we would talk to people and ask them what their issues were, what they were looking for. Some people had questions and we would answer questions for them. And through that process, they came to see us, oh, we carry dance pads and we kind of knew what we were talking about. And that's kind of how we built our early reputation. So this like uh, dance pad thing is booming. 
was there a certain point where you and your brother kind of looked at each other and were like, uh, we should really grow this side of the business? Yes. So we decided, well, you know, how do we kind of double down on some of these accessories and the dance pads and the growth business? And that's when we decided, well, you know, because we were direct to consumer, we had a lot of feedback. Customers would either say, hey, this is breaking and I want a refund or return or exchange, or they would say, huge fans, I love it. Can you put this feature in your next product? And so a lot of direct feedback. We went out and sort of solicited feedback from people in the forums and people who love the game. And we decided, well, why don't we go make our own dance pads instead of just reselling somebody else's? And that was kind of another evolution step for the company. And how did VCs react to that? Well, you know, the funny thing is that when the internet bubble burst in 2000, right after we raised money, startups just were unable to raise money. And we were one of those startups. So we we tried to talk to VCs. And back then, we just couldn't raise the money. So it, they didn't react because they never even heard. We never even pitched them the idea. It's pretty unheard of these days. Nowadays, it's quite unusual, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you guys were starting to manufacture your own dance pads. And how is the market reacting to that? Yeah. So, you know, we decided to make our own dance pads. We went to China, found the manufacturers, said, you know, this is what we want to build and, you know, worked with them to build it. The the product, our first container landed 2,200 units of dance pads. Where did you store it all? We had a small warehouse because we rented games. We needed the warehouse to store all the games and ship them. So got it. luckily we, we already had the space. Right. It wasn't all in your apartment. No, luckily, no, it would, would not have fit in my apartment. So we got the product in, we put it on our website and we started selling and, you know, we got lucky, right. As all startups sort of along the way need to, need to have happen. We got lucky, the dance pads, um, people loved our customers were buying them love. They started to spread the word. And all of a sudden we started building um, a reputation for not just selling somebody else's dance pad, but actually our own red octane dance pads were really high quality. And, you know, for us, it was fantastic because our margins shot up tremendously and especially for hardware, which typically has very low margins. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the the first big growth step in our company. Yeah. And then at this point, you guys are like, okay, so this hardware business, there's there's something to it. That's right. Once our first dance pad started selling, we thought, wow, you know, people are you know willing to pay for these accessories. And we started to figure out, well, you know, what, what other accessories would they be looking for? So the next product that we did was actually an arcade joystick for fighting games like Street Fighter. And, you know, there was a whole niche community built around those fighting games. And Mm -hmm. they were looking for some really high-end products. So we really explored, like, you know, what are the best components to use? What are they looking for? We started, you know, building these arcade joysticks and selling them. The next major product that we introduced was the Red Octane Ignition Dance Pad, which was an even higher-level, higher-end dance pad than our original $50 one. We made a ton of improvements to it. It had this zipper and this foam that slid into it and, you know, made it more stable and, and more comfortable. And, you know, that was really, again, another step change for us. When we introduced 
that dance pad, the ignition dance pad, we originally retailed it at $130 and our cost of goods was 15. So again, shooting for kind of a high end. And that ultimately became sort of the best-selling dance pad in the U.S. in 2003, four and five, and just kind of the foundation for helping us get to the next step of video game publishing. Right. And at that point, were you guys profitable? We were profitable. You know, we stayed really lean and we were lucky enough to have these accessories that, you know, were selling. We were probably doing two to three million in revenue at that time, 2002, 2003. So, yeah, we, you know, we, we grew pretty quickly and, you know, we were lucky to have come across a couple of really good, you know, high margin uh, products for us. So we got to profitability really quick, but as most people who have worked on businesses know, they're like hungry babies, you know, mm-hmm. constantly need cash and, and resources. So we never felt like we had hey, a lot of resources, but mm-hmm. we also, you know, knew that we didn't have to worry like, wow, we're going to go out of business tomorrow if we don't do something right now. So, so then you had this mentality that you're like, I'm going to gun for the stars. And so you guys just kept iterating and iterating at what point were you like, let's build our own thing with its auxiliary accessories? Yeah, so the Red Octane Ignition Dance Pad sort of gave us our next big push. In 2003, we decided to try to get our products into retail, brick and mortar. Mm. And it took us about a year. And people, of course, told us, don't do it. You're going to go out of business. They're not going to pay you. You're going to get screwed. But we thought to ourselves, well, look, you know, we have our own direct-to-consumer online business. If retail doesn't work, we can always just stop selling to them. Right. So it took us a year, knocking on doors. Finally, after a year, you know, we sort of cracked the code and we got our dance pads into GameStop and EB, Electronics Boutique, and eventually Best Buy. And that was kind of, again, the next catalyst. And, you know, we were trying to figure out Wow, no, our products are in retail and they were doing well. And, you know, we were doing at that time probably five to six million in revenue with maybe two million in profits. And we just kind of wanted to continue making these high end accessories for other people's games. We had no mm-hmm. thought of making our own game. So we went to the Japanese publishers who were the ones that really invented the music game genre and made all the music games and they released a bunch of music games in Japan, but they didn't release them in the US. And so we went to them and said, hey, are you guys interested? Why don't you guys release your music games in the US? Mm-hmm. And universally, they pretty much told us outside of DDR, we don't think there's a market for music games in the US. They just don't sell. Huh. Uh, did you prove them wrong? <laughs> <laughs> we, we certainly got lucky. We proved them wrong. So we heard that and we're like, oh, wow, okay. You know, our business at that point was making accessories for their game. So we were totally dependent on them. And that was going to, you know, at some point potentially jeopardize our business. And that was kind of a turning point for us where we said, well, to sort of control our own destiny, I think we should think about publishing our own games. So we came across this dance game developed by a small uh, game studio in Austin called Rocksor. Rockstore Games, they were doing a DDR clone or DDR-like game just for the arcade. And it was gaining popularity in the arcade versus DDR. And we approached them and said, hey, we like your game and, you know, we'd love to publish it on console. 
PlayStation, Xbox, Nintendo. So it took us a couple months. We worked out a deal, and we ended up becoming publishers for the first game. That was, that was in the groove. In our sort of minds, it was to help us sell dance pads. For every game that we sold, which is $40 at the time, we could sell $200 dance pads. That's $200. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about an auxiliary business. It's like lead gen for you guys. It was fantastic. We could have given the game away. Talk to me about how you developed Guitar Hero and like what went into the thinking behind it. Yeah. So, so our first game was this dance game and that was sort of it. While that was in development, we actually thought, well, maybe we can tackle a second project. So I reached out to another startup, a game studio that I I had reached out to many years before because we wanted to make accessories for some of the games they were developing. And, you know, we never really worked anything out earlier. Called them back up again and said, hey, you know, this time we're really interested in not just making accessories for games that you've developed in the past, but we're, you know, we're actually thinking about, you know, publishing and not just being an accessories manufacturer. We're actually thinking about publishing more music games. And yeah. so the the studio, the company's name was Harmonics, Harmonics Music Systems. I, I called them up. It took us about four months to convince them to work with us because we were a small startup and, you know, they were a startup, but they had worked with Konami and Sony on projects. So they were working with much bigger companies and we had to convince them of sort of our shared vision in music games. So once we sort of convinced them to to work with us, then it, you know, sort of off to the races to figure out what we wanted to build. We thought that music games, if you were going to build it for the West, you had to pick a genre that people would like here. And so for us, you know, at that time it was rock and roll. And then we were all about the accessory. That was kind of a big part of our business. And we thought, well, if you're going to make an accessory for a rock and roll based game, what would it be? And for us, it was sort of naturally guitar. And that was kind of the birth of the guitar hero concept. Launching Guitar Hero was a risk for Red Octane. It was one of many big bets Kai and his brother took on the business. Despite signing a deal with a gaming company and also a deal with MTV, they didn't have enough cash flow to launch the actual game. In fact, the company almost went bankrupt right before the launch of Guitar Hero. Prior to this, Kai's company, Red Octane, had already faced the risk of bankruptcy twice, once during the dot-com bubble and another when they launched their dance pads. They vowed every single time that they would never let this happen, and yet it happened a third time. We were profitable. We had cash flow coming in. Game development took about $2 million. And we knew it was a, mm-hmm. a risk that could cripple us, but we knew that it wouldn't kill us if it didn't mm-hmm. work. Then we had to pay for our own team. And we did the hardware as the publisher because software companies didn't do the hardware. And that was an important part of it for us. We right. did the sales, marketing, distribution. We had to front the inventory for the hardware. We had to front the inventory for the software when that was all done. And so when we were getting ready to launch Guitar Hero for a small startup, again, we ran into a cash crunch, right? We had to front all of that money and we had to wait to get paid. 
And we went to VCs and none of them were interested in investing in us. So we went to a family friend. They were getting ready to remodel their house. So they had money set aside to remodel their house. And we said, we just need to borrow the money for like three months. We're going to get paid and we'll pay you back. Plus, you know, all this extra stuff on top. She loaned us half a million dollars. And we used that half a million dollars to basically launch Guitar Hero. And that's kind of how, how we made it through. And how are you feeling the day Guitar Hero dropped? There were so many stories leading up to it. Even, you know, Best Buy was going to fine us money because we couldn't ship it to them in time. And, and you know, we thought, oh, my gosh, we don't have enough units. How are we going to do this? We can't get fined. We don't have money. We had to borrow money just to survive. It was like, oh man, you know, afford the fine. So we just got to ship to Best Buy first and GameStop and EB will have to wait and they'll probably be angry, but, you know, we'll figure that out later. So it was a nerve wracking time when Guitar Hero literally, you know, when it dropped, it was like we were scrambling to figure out did Best Buy get their units in time? And literally it was down to the day. It was a very, very stressful time. We ended up luckily shipping everything to Best Buy by that Friday. They put it up on the shelves. And we didn't get any information until the next Monday morning. By the time we got to the office, we were already getting voicemails. Best Buy is in Minneapolis. So they're three hours ahead. So they're, you know, they're calling us their 9am. It's our 6am here. Nobody's even in the office. They're like, hey, you know, Guitar Hero is selling really well, kind of flying off the shelves. We'd love to like talk to you about sending us more. How did that feel? When you when you like picked up the phone and, and heard that it was crazy, you know, it, 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 it just you don't think the product is you know going to fly off the shelf like that. You know, we're not a big publisher. We didn't put multi-million dollar marketing budgets on prior to the launch of the game. And it was a surprise and it was, you know, a great surprise and mind blowing. It was so crazy. We They called us before lunch. They called us like an hour later after lunch. And their buyer was like, hey, we just sold 700 units of Guitar Hero over lunch. Like, hey, when, when can you ship us some more? And we had nothing in the warehouse, right? I said, we shipped everything we could <laughs> to them. And sure enough, that afternoon, we get a call from GameStop and they love to swear all the time. What the F? I just walked into my competitor store, Best Buy, and I saw Guitar Hero on the shelf. Where's our Guitar Hero? And we're like, oh, God, what do we what do we tell them? Right. So we said, "Okay, okay, here's what we tell them. We tell them that Best Buy came to our warehouse and picked up their units and your units, they're on a truck and it'll take about five days to ship to you. And so that was kind of the white lie. Like we had no inventory in our warehouse. We had nothing. And, <laughs> and so every truckload that came in, we had to like turn them around and, and ship them out. And so we shipped them their units by the end of the week and we shipped EB by the end of the week. And we didn't have any extra units for Best Buy. They kept calling and Finally, GameStop got it, put it on the shelf, and it started selling well for them and selling out. What also then happened was everybody just kept calling us, we need more products, we need more products. And- I mean, it's, it's a great and terrible problem to have at the same time. That's right. It, it's like, yeah, you're on top of the world, but you're sort of the worst possible position that you could be in at the same time. Rock. 
Walk This Way, the number one selling video game. Guitar Hero has teamed up with the legendary rock group Aerosmith. And joining us with the details are the creators behind this wildly popular game, Charles and Kai Huang. Welcome, guys. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having us. Okay, well, it was the number one selling video game in 2007. How'd you guys come up with this? So for the first year, you know, after we launched the game, it was it was really just so much stress. We were trying to figure out how do we increase our inventory, how do we get more product in, how do we get more games into the channel. We were expanding into new retailers because we knew the game could sell. So we were, you know, looking at different retailers that we had never been in before. Then finally, for you know the umpteen time, we went back to the VCs to try to raise money and kind of go back to that, you know, dream of, hey, can we build this into a company that can go public or get acquired? And what did they say this time? (laughs) (laughs) This time was a little bit easier. There was still a lot of people that didn't like it, but the early results on Guitar Hero were interesting. And so we got a lot more callbacks. Did anybody say yes? You know, we actually did end up getting a couple term sheets At the same time, we also got a call from Activision. When we got a call from Activision, that was kind of when we put the VC sort of conversations on pause and decided to talk to them some more and and see what they were interested in. And how did that call go? I remember I was at CES and walking outside and it was loud and I got a call and the person said, hey, this is Ron Dorning from Activision. I wasn't super experienced in the game industry, so I didn't know a lot of people, but I recognized Ron Dorning's name. He was the president mm-hmm. of Activision. I said, oh, I'm mm-hmm. getting a call from the president of Activision. This must be pretty important. So I took the call and he was like, yeah, hey, you know, we'd love to come visit you and talk about how we could help and collaborate and see what you guys are up to. So I said, fantastic. You know, when I get back from CES, let's let's schedule a meeting and we can chat. So I did. And they came up and, you know, we visited with their couple of their senior execs, including Ron. They sort of started with, you know, how can we help you guys? And we said, well, I know we're pretty small, but we we actually have full distribution, which was very unusual for a small company like us to Full distribution, meaning we sold into all the brick and mortars directly. Most small companies, number one, cannot can never sell into them. But even if they're interested in your product, they don't want to buy it directly from you as a small company. They ask you or make you, force you to sell it through a distributor. And then they buy it from that distributor that they've probably had a long time relationship with. You know, we had built up our, our retail business slowly and direct. And so we worked with them all directly. So we said... Well, we, you know, we work with all the retailers directly. We're not sure that, you know, we need any help from that standpoint. And I think that's when their conversation shifted to possible acquisition. Did they initially just right off the bat make an offer or they were kind of just punting or uh, beating around the bush about it? it? It was definitely a little dance. You know, it usually is. And so we did a little dance back and forth and back and forth. And finally, you know, they shifted the conversation. And then shortly after that, they decided... You know, we said, well, why don't you give us an offer? And so they took a little bit of time and gave us an offer. And at that point, did you guys share with your parents? <laughs> we did. That was, that was finally, yeah, it was like, holy cow, you know, we sold the company. And, you know, I, 
I'm not sure that at that time, even that they sort of truly understood everything that had happened. It's just, you know, probably a little bit foreign for them, this type of business, even though they've been in business for most of their lives, you know, this sort of Silicon Valley style startup, big acquisition, slightly different but they were obviously very proud of us. And, you know, my mom said one of the things that she was always most happy about was, was only my brother and I as siblings. She said, I'm glad that you guys did it together. Because if you didn't, she would always have to be worried about like, oh, you know, one was successful and one wasn't. And now she doesn't have to worry. <laughs> That's so also very Asian. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> At what point did you feel like you finally made it? So the first year was was just struggling to, to keep up. And every year after that, with Guitar Hero 2, the second year, and Guitar Hero 3, everything was just, how do we chase a tiger by the tail? And, you know, when we launched Guitar Hero 3, it wasn't until, if you can believe this, until we launched Guitar Hero 3, where I felt like we finally made it. And Guitar Hero 3 became the biggest selling game in US of all time. And it held that record for six years until Call of Duty finally broke the record. It sold just under a billion dollars in the US that just Guitar Hero 3 and just in the US. Mm. And it wasn't even that, that made me feel like we made it. It wasn't until South Park made an episode of Guitar Hero called Guitar Queero, which I loved, it was hilarious. <laughs> that I thought, wow, you know, <laughs> this is it, right? So you become I mainstream. Become, become mainstream. Guitar Hero had become mainstream. There's nothing like South Park to tell you that you made it into mainstream <laughs> media, right. right? What advice do you have to people who are bootstrapping their businesses? The one sort of best piece of advice that I got a, from a friend who started a business when we were starting Red Octane and he he sold their business and they did really well back in the early days. He said, Kai, no matter what, you just got to hang on. You just got to hang on. Start up a business, whether you bootstrapped or VC, doesn't matter. Survival is everything in a startup. You can't win if you don't hang on. And I think, you know, when I look at people ultimately who have succeeded consistently, that's kind of the one thing you can look back to is they were just able to hang on. They figured out a way to do whatever they needed to do. If they bootstrap their business, you don't have the luxury of getting a big slug of cash from an investor, but you know, you got to hustle, you got to figure out how to make it work and you just got to hang on. We always wrap up the podcast with a signature question. So our signature question is, how do you intend to rock the boat? One of the things that I love to do and continue to do is work with other entrepreneurs. I think I get a lot of mm. energy out of that. I hope the entrepreneurs that I'm lucky enough to work with uh, get the same amount of energy. As an entrepreneur myself, I love the idea of innovation and creating and building things. And when I have the opportunity to work with a lot of entrepreneurs, which is a lot of what I do these days, I just love to kind of share my knowledge and and quite honestly, at the end of the day, just sharing stories like entrepreneur founders don't have a lot of people to turn to. 
Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is amazing. I had a really great conversation. Thanks for having me on Rock the Boat. Really enjoyed it and hope all the listeners learned something along the way. That was Kai Huang, founder of the epic music game Guitar Hero. What I loved about Kai's story is that he and his brother took big bets. They went against the grain, they told the Japanese companies that yes, music games work in the US, and they built a true business without the rocket fuel of venture capital. They controlled their own destiny by first building their own DDR dance pads to then establishing their own products and brands. They also built their own relationships with retailers instead of going to a third-party distributor, which gave them a lot of leverage. In this day and age of growth before all else, Red Octane's business model feels refreshing. And beyond building a successful company with a significant exit, Kai and his brother contributed to an important piece of American culture. The Guitar Hero series has sold more than 25 million units worldwide, earning $2 billion in retail. And Activision even claimed that it is the third largest game franchise after Mario and Madden NFL franchises. Even now, 15 years after its release, you can still find Guitar Hero as a fan favorite game in your local arcade. Thanks for tuning in to Rock the Boat. In light of all that's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, Rock the Boat is launching a conversation series between the Black and Asian community. The series is called Let's Talk. And the goal of this conversation series is not to talk about how Asians can support Black Lives Matter. There's tons of resources out there about it or how to fight against anti-Asian sentiments. Again, there's a lot of resources, but this conversation series is more so an exploration and conversation between two groups of people who have had very different yet similar experiences. And the goal is to share stories and to find common ground. Details will be posted in the show notes. Please support the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating if you're listening on iTunes, and definitely tell your friends about it. This episode was written and edited by me, Lucia Liu. You can follow us on Instagram at rocktheboatnyc and subscribe to our mailing list for inside news. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all next time. <laughs>